when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Eli Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today's episode is going to be a little different. We've been talking about new formats to experiment with in Decoder episodes this year, and one thing we really wanted to do is put some of our guests in conversation with each other. After all, one of the Decoder secrets is that I tend to ask a lot of the same questions over and over because a lot of companies are trying to solve the same problems. It's useful to listen to those answers back to back. There's a lot of themes in there. So we're going to give it a shot in this episode. Check it out and tell us what you think. For this experiment, we picked cars. Regular listeners of Decoder know that car CEOs love coming on our show. There's a lot of change in the car industry and a lot of big ideas about how to manage that change. There's also a lot of big problems to solve. The transition to electric vehicles, the fact that cars are basically turning into rolling smartphones, how to make self-driving work and then work safely, and more. And of course, we always end up talking about Tesla because, you know, how can you not? In the past 11 months, I've spoken to Jim Farley, the CEO of Ford, Thomas Ingenlatt, the CEO of Polestar, Christian Mounier, the CEO of Jeep, and most recently, Herbert Diess, the CEO of Volkswagen Group. We've also spoken to a handful of CEOs who are building autonomous driving technology. Austin Russell, the CEO of Luminar, Brian Selesky, the CEO of Ario AI, and Takedra Moakana, the CEO of Waymo. They're all working on self-driving cars in various ways. There are some themes that keep coming up in these conversations. It's worth highlighting the similarities and differences. It's also fascinating to hear how different car companies approach the same problems and what goes into the decisions made by the big incumbent auto CEOs versus the newest players. Sometimes they agree with each other, sometimes they completely disagree. I'll just give you one simple example. While some companies are racing towards self-driving, Jeep CEO Christian Mounier feels like totally autonomous driving would take away the freedom that Jeep represents. One last thing. One of the main ideas I had when we started Decoder was that every decision in tech and business is really a trade-off. You can arrive at very different conclusions depending on what things you want to emphasize or what bets you want to take. And that really understanding a decision involves really understanding the trade-offs. All these folks are trying to reinvent the car industry, but they're making very different trade-offs along the way. And it's illuminating to hear them all at the same time. Okay. All of the car CEOs we've had on Decoder so far. Here we go. So we have to start with electric cars. 2022 is the year that so many companies have said their electric vehicles would arrive or they've just announced them. Plus, by now, virtually every major car company has thrown out a prediction for when it will be fully electric, not selling any gas cars at all. But there's a lot of variation in how these companies approach the move to electric. Some are making entirely new cars with new names. Others are trying to trade on their old names and using electric drivetrains. Still others are using the old names, but with entirely new kinds of cars. So listen for the different approaches and the different ways that each company is tackling the many obstacles to going electric. Let's start with Ford CEO, Jim Farley. 
do you anticipate that sometime in the future Ford will only make electric cars, that you won't make any gas or diesel vehicles at all? I would say for retail, I could see that day. We'd have to get to solid state, and a lot of other things would have to happen. Infrastructure would have to improve in places like South Africa and Australia. I mean, you know, Ford is, unlike a lot of our competitors, we didn't really shrink our global footprint. So we're still a very large company in Australia and Thailand and South Africa. I, I think it'll take some time for those societies to move to full electric, but the only maybe exception for us is that we're such a dominant commercial brand. Ford still has a lot of the federal tax credits that bring the price of EVs even lower for most people. Those do run out. They are finite. Some other car makers have run out of them. Are you lobbying the Biden administration to extend that program to offer more tax credits? You know, look, Ford was the only major car company to support the Paris Accord and the California Standard uh, when it was not popular in Washington, <laughs> D.C., and we absolutely think that to make this move to e-mobility, customers are very rational. They do the math. If electric vehicles are cheaper for them to own and operate, that will be one more thing that makes them more compelling. And so we think it's a pretty important initiative for the new administration. The key is going to be to balance a lot of other things beyond just moving to electric vehicles and zero emission. Next is Volkswagen Group CEO Herbert Diess. Volkswagen has made some big promises when it comes to electrification. They've said they will stop selling gas cars in Europe by 2035. So I asked him about that. When do you think you'll have enough batteries? When will, will there be charging infrastructure? I think, you know, this transition into EVs has certain constraints. Now, I think the, the plan now 50% by 2030 is extremely ambitious. Now, imagine that means only for we have, we own here in, in Europe about 20% market share, uh, and for those then um, for those 20% market share maintaining that 50% uh, EVs we need six gigafactories, yeah, which has to be which, they have to be up and running by 27, 28 to be able to deliver on our 20. It's close to impossible <laughs> to do that. It's really, and I have high respect for uh, our team who is really facing the challenge because you have to buy all the machine tools. You have to build the plants. No, you have to find the locations. You have to train the people. You have to make sure that uh, the supply of the raw materials is safeguarded and, and secured. This is huge. No, so it's not just, say, uh, let's switch off uh, uh, ICE cars. It's just impossible. The second thing is that it uh, electric cars only make sense if the energy is renewable. No, if only if the energy is really green energy. It comes from wind or solar or nuclear. Uh, but as long as we have nations based on producing electric energy on coal, it doesn't make sense to sell electric vehicles there. Now think about Poland, I think is 100% coal currently. So uh, before we sell electric cars, we have to convert the primary energy sector into renewables, into 100% renewables. And this has to go hand in hand with the conversion of primary energy production, and this requires time. And this is why uh, two ambitious plans will not work. They will be even counterproductive because, you know, running EVs on coal-fired uh, car plants is even worse than running, running gasoline cars. I also asked the same question to Jeep CEO Christian Munier. Do you think you'll sell any gas engines in 2040? In 2040? Yeah, I'm just five years after the farthest timeline you've announced. Do you think you'll have any gas engines? I'd be tempted to answer no. I'll be tempted to answer that no traditional IC will be in a Jeep in 2040, but maybe I'm wrong. We're a global brand, so we'll be accommodating markets. But I think all, you know, all the markets in the world evolve in that direction. And you can take the BRICS, you can take India, you can take Brazil can take uh, China. Obviously, China has made the move to electrification, but even India is moving, putting incentives to bring BEV. They, they want to have BEV built in India. Latin America is a little slower because they have the flex fuel, and obviously there are some other uh, political and economical ramification to it. But think about a country like Brazil. It's 100% hydroelectric. So they produce the electricity with water, right? That's a pure cycle, right? There is no detriment to nature. So it's a really good technology. So over time, they will move into electrification. So 2040, 
It's going to be very small if there is any. One of the things uh, other companies seem to be doing is creating new brands for their electric vehicles. So, you know, Ford has the Mustang Mach-E. It's a whole new car. They've got the Lightning. Chevy has the Bolt. Toyota famously has the Prius. You have not done that. You have not created new electric vehicles. You've electrified or hybridized your existing vehicles. Why do that? Why not split it out and make it clear this is a technology brand that offers this and these are our existing cars? Why why hybridize the existing vehicles? Because Jeep is going to become electric. There's no point in having another brand. Jeep is going to become electric. So it's going to become a 100% electric. The question is how fast? Going through different probably stages, but it's going to be a, a, it's going to be a, a pure electric brand at one stage in 10, 15, 20 years. So I think there is no point in, in doing this, at least for Jeep. There's no reason to do it. Uh, when manufacturers really believe in electrification, why do that? So why? I don't I don't really get it. Why would you create another brand for electric cars when you're going to keep your ICE? So you're going to have a polluting brand and non-polluting brand. What I, I don't I don't understand. I was excited to ask Polestar CEO Thomas Ingenlatt about the transition to full electric vehicles. Polestar is supposed to be an electric car company, it was spun off of Volvo, but their first car was a hybrid. If you think the future is EVs, obviously hybrids are an interim step, but why start with a gas engineer cars at all? We had that discussion, of course, in the beginning. It is kind of like, why do you have a hybrid at all in your lineup? It was at the end, like, come on, should we really be so dogmatic about it? It is a car that has the longest electric range of a hybrid, 120, 130 kilometers you can go. So for a lot of people, that car is actually a great entry into that electric arena. It helps people to actually feel comfortable about driving an electric car. People who might have never, ever thought about it before. They discover with that car, wow, actually the electric part is, is the real cool part about it. And it was always clear, it is just that limited three years production. It is that one fulfillment of a dream that we all had. It's this super beautiful GT and the technology is awesome. Hybrid is part of the electric journey. We will, of course, from now on have the electric lineup of the portfolio. And it, it will be that, that amazing car in the beginning. Yeah, a little bit of a unorthodox beginning. But then again, you know, it's the whole thing, the whole brand poster is not just a marketing exercise where you do a perfect plan from A to Z. It is, <laughs> it is a living thing. It has its, its, its history, how it all grew. And I think it has its charm to it that we actually don't just simply do everything about how, how textbook is, but give it a little bit more of air to breathe. And we at the end decided, come on, it is absolutely in line with, with what the, company philosophy is about. And that's why we felt at, at the end of the day, it, electric time will be a certain period of Polestar. Let's face in, in, in 50, in 60, 70 years, we will be still Polestar, but technology might have changed again. So sometime in the near future, there will be a lot more electric cars on the road, but we're going to need somewhere to charge them. Every time we do an electric car episode of Decoder, I get asked questions about charging networks. Right now, EVs have problems with range. You can't go that far on just one charge. And unless you're driving a Tesla, the charging infrastructure is pretty messy in the United States. Building out charging networks is a huge priority for all of these companies and for policymakers. The U.S. government will spend $7.5 billion on charging networks after passing the Biden infrastructure bill. Of course, we also recently talked to Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg about charging as well. Here's what he had to say. One definite example is the uh, the deployment of a nationwide network of electric vehicle chargers. And it's a good example of some of the play in what exactly the role of government is, right? So we don't need to invent a new electric vehicle charger. The private sector has come up with a lot of versions of it. We don't even need to deploy them ourselves single-handedly in a network that's owned and operated by the government. Again, the private sector is there for that. But we have a very important role to play in terms of making sure that uh, a network is laid out across this country for everybody, that it's not just in the most automatically, immediately profitable places, but in the places that collectively add up 
to uh, there being no range anxiety for any American anywhere weighing whether to buy an electric vehicle. Uh, that means filling in for market failures. It means accelerating market processes. It means using the purchasing power and guidelines that, that are available to the federal government to encourage made in America components and, and facilities uh, to, to thrive in, in the EV charging space. I think when, when you want a company to do something that's not in their shareholder interest, there, there's got to be more to the picture than, than pressure. And that's why this is about using dollars, uh, using billions of, of dollars to achieve that outcome. But we're also not going to just use those dollars to incentivize something that would have happened anyway, to, to pad profitabilities that would exist. So yes, it's about smoothing that picture, right? I mean, right now, you can make a buck putting a, an electric vehicle charger in a lot of places in the US, but that might not be the places where it's going to make the biggest difference difference in terms of our development into an EV country. I wanted to start with Volkswagen CEO Herbert Diess in this section, because Volkswagen has a substantial charging network in the US. It's part of a company they call Electrify America. Volkswagen was forced to start Electrify America because of the Dieselgate scandal. Basically, Volkswagen skirted emissions regulations by tampering with its cars to make them seem like they are producing less pollution than they actually were. To atone for that, as part of a settlement with the US government, Volkswagen agreed to spend $2 billion on electric vehicles and charging infrastructure. That turned into Electrify America. But I've often wondered if that punishment was a blessing in disguise. It forced Volkswagen to build Electrify America. So I asked Herbert Dees about it. I want to talk about charging infrastructure. You run Electrify America, right? That's a Volkswagen project. It came out of the Dieselgate settlement with California. Do you want to run Electrify America? Like, I think of having to do that because of a settlement related to a scandal. There's a part of me that says you're doing it begrudgingly. There's another part of me that says, oh, this is a huge opportunity to own the, the major charging network in America if you can get over that genesis. Yeah, I have to say, uh, from all the penalties we received in America, I most liked from the beginning this idea of a charging network. Now, because I always found that the idea of paving the way for our electric cars or even making electric cars viable in America would be, at the end, an asset for us. No, uh, So I, I, I really liked it. But still, this was big investment. It's not going to pay off too soon. But over time, we are noticing that charging will be a business model. Now, there's a lot of investment going into charging now. All the petrol companies, the biggest uh, charging network company currently is Shell. No? So that means there's a lot of business potential in charging. We see that our also our incomes are really gradually improving because the uh, usage is, is getting higher and with every electric car we're selling, it's, it's getting better. That is why we think charging will play a major role. We think also this uh, all what what today is with the uh, with the petrol companies, no? supplying the energy, dealing with energy, we get much more complex because the prices for uh, electric energy are fluctuating. No, you mm -hmm. can buy at high places. You have to you have to be able to buffer. And cars will provide a huge opportunity to be able to contribute to net stability. Not to the electric net stability because you basically you can load the car when there's a surplus. We will experience times where you get your 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 refueling for free because there's just so much uh, energy surplus because of so much renewables in the network. So this is a new business model, and we want to participate. We want to participate. And uh, yes, uh, in America, it was not entirely voluntary at the beginning. But at the end, I think it, it was the baseline for one of our really also strategic approaches into EV business. Next up is Jeep CEO Christian Munier. When Christian was on Decoder, Jeep had just announced a new plug-in hybrid Jeep Grand Cherokee, and they had already released the plug-in hybrid Wrangler, the 4xe. Here's Christian. One of the big stumbling blocks to full electrification is charging networks. You can have a vision of all electric cars everywhere in 2040. Here in 2021, Tesla has great charging network. Mm -hmm. Every other company has a bad charging experience. That is just the way every review has gone. It's the way my experience with electric vehicles has gone, other people with electric vehicles. How do you see that expanding? I think the, the responsibility of our governments, whether in the, it is in the US or in Europe or elsewhere, is to accelerate because there is one thing to put pressure on compliance. It's another thing to make sure that everything else follows and you put the right focus to get the grid 
in line, I think the risk would be that the grid is not supporting all these electrification efforts. Uh, so that's a risk. But I think it's the responsibility of a government to do that. Obviously, we'll work with them. We're pushing them because it has to happen quicker than it currently happens. And it's like also on the production of electricity. You know, at one point in time, we're going to have to do something to produce more electric uh, electricity to support all these uh, needs. You know, I'm hearing that in California, so there is some recommendation not to use the grid at certain hours and things like that, because there's not enough already to support the electric cars on the road. That's a big challenge. And it has to be solved between, I would say, now and 2023, 24, because the volume of cars sold in the, in the United States, in North America and Europe, is going to be much higher. There are strong plans that are being developed, but it's going to be about execution. So the governments will have a lot of pressure to deliver on that mission. And here's Ford CEO Jim Farley. So when you drive a Mach-E around, you open the charging map, Ford looks like it has a lot of charging stations, but they're not yours, right? The software is sort of collating a bunch of partnerships with other companies, other car makers, and you, you kind of see all the, the charging stations around. But sometimes they're incompatible. Sometimes they don't char- all charge at the same rates. You've got a Lightning. You've got a Mach-E. They use different charging technology. If I was talking to like a standard tech company executive, I'd be like, where's the industry standard? How are you going to adopt it? How are you going to enforce it? And how do I know that my USB-C cable plugs into the computers all the same way? And it feels like with charging, you've got the exact same problem, but on a massive scale. Yeah, it's a big deal. And you can see why it's such a big focus for the new administration and their infrastructure investment. You know, I think there is a lot of work to do. I think we've done a very good job with what's out there. At Ford, I mean, I have no hesitation with a Maki customer, you know, living life with Maki every day. I don't see any risk at all in the charging experience, but there is a lot of improvement that we can make. I totally agree. I will say, though, that Ford has the opportunity on the commercial side to do what Tesla's done on the retail side, because we're 40% of that industry. And we absolutely intend for the charging experience for our commercial customers to be a Ford experience that's going to be unique. And we know these customers very well, and they have very different charging experience and and requirements. So I would just encourage us both, when we think about the charging work statement, we should think about not just the retail one, we should also think about the commercial vehicles, because it's quite different. And it's starting from scratch. We need to take a quick break, but we'll have a lot more when we come back. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio and find out for yourself. Support for this podcast comes from Hims. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Hims is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hims.com/decoder. 
That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. We're back. Besides electrification, the other massive change rippling through the auto industry is software. Cars really are turning into rolling computers with all of the same costs and concerns that any other computer has. And there's software everywhere from the computers that control the drivetrains to the entertainment systems in the center console. Some of the biggest players in tech are actually making aggressive moves in that center console. Apple obviously has CarPlay, and Google has options ranging from connecting a phone all the way to running the entire car on Android. Every car company has to make decisions about what software to use, or if they're going to build their own. And those decisions are really quite complicated. Here's how Ford CEO Jim Farley described his decision to sign a deal with Google. The idea that a car is just a rolling computer, it's very appealing to me or on a tech website, but it is, right? You just signed a deal with Google. Android's going to power sync in the future. How long should people expect Ford to support the computers in their cars the way that I expect Apple to support my iPhone for eight years or 10 years? This is such an important question. It's actually the first time I've ever been asked this question. And I will tell you that we have to go through a kind of game-changing mentality of simplifying our technology stack so we can support all the software releases for all this complexity. And, you know, for me, this is probably one of the key areas uh, that I spend the most time on. We're up to millions of connected vehicles now. I, I think we're at Ford, we're a trusted brand, frankly, more than a lot of technology companies. If you look at the survey, we're going to have to uh, commit to the resources to support these vehicles that we're launching now for, for decades to come. The real lift is going to be how do we simplify going forward so that we only have certain hardware and, and so- embedded software solutions, complexities, so that we don't go crazy with our software resources. Here's a Volkswagen Group CEO, Herbert Thies. You recently took over the software division, Carried. Uh, How do we build a compelling user experience? How do we deliver software updates? Right, You turn the car into a computer. You inherit computer problems. Why is Carried a division of Volkswagen instead of Volkswagen, if that is the future? I think you're, you're absolutely right in your, in your verdict. Uh, the differentiation, the competitiveness, also the customer experience uh, will depend 90% on software. No, still, I, I'm convinced that design will play a role, performance will play a role, brand image uh, marketing will play a role, but software is becoming really dominant in the integration. So product integrity in a huge, uh, uh, in a complex open room of solutions always has been a core task. What's really new is that it's so decisive to be able to integrate software no, in, the, in the different properties. The car today already is 10 times more complex than a smartphone. No? It, it has 10 times more lines of code than a smartphone. The criteria is extremely different. No? You're, you're safety critical. The real-time environments are really difficult for if you think braking or steering. Redundant, you have to build in redundancies and then you have to make the whole thing communicate to each other and being updatable means that part of your software runs in the cloud and, and you get the uh, continuous updates. And the question is, who is going to succeed? Who can do it? No? For the companies working on self-driving technology like Argo AI, a huge part of their product is the software. Here's Brian Seleski, CEO of Argo AI. Ford and Volkswagen are obviously gigantic car companies. They're good at things like alloy wheels and leather seats. and right, They make cars. You don't make cars. What is the Argo product? Where does it begin and end? The product is really, at its core, a whole lot of software that runs on some pretty specialized hardware. 
that connects to a car in a safe way. And I would say those car companies do a lot more than just leather seats <laughs> and, and, and wheels. I don't know if you're setting me up here, but uh, uh, I mean, they're increasingly becoming software companies in their own right. And in fact, if you look at the car as a digital device, there's actually an API, and it's a really important one that you know we interface with to be able to control basic things like steering and braking, and being able to do that in a safe and secure way is actually not trivial. So, you know, heavy respect for what they do, and working in concert with the automakers and working in a really close and collaborative way, make sure that those interfaces are done right and in a secure and safe way. They put a specialized computer in their car. It runs your software. Do you have any? hardware demands? Or is there a set of sensors that you require? Is there stuff that you make or is it off the shelf? How does that part work? Yeah, it's sort of an amalgamation of things. So they certainly have computing that their control software operates on. We have, it almost looks like a mini data center in the car that's able to process data from sensors that are positioned all around it. So the car is able to see through sensors that we make as well as buy, is able to see 360 degrees around it, 400 meters away is able to see day, night, and is able to pick up on things that I would venture to say most human drivers don't even necessarily see or notice. And so many times a second, the car is reading in that information and making decisions about how to uh, navigate it through the street. Volvo and Polestar use Android in their cars on a very deep level. Here's Polestar CEO Thomas Ingenlatt with some great points about the idea of just using CarPlay or Android Auto. What is the balance there between letting Google own what has become a primary user experience in the car and what you want to design? Well, it's a customer benefit. If we promise to have a voice recognition that works, if we promise to have a navigation that actually knows that new restaurant around the block that opened a week ago and they know already, they want to know the opening times when they put into the Navi. I mean, that is what we never can do on our own. That experience we can only do if we have a great partner with a great search engine behind it and everything. Do we give up that experience? No. I mean, people sitting in a poster don't think that that suddenly is populated by uh, something outlandish owned by Google. It is such a poster experience, nevertheless. It's a partnership. And that is where, if you go then to Ford or whatever, wherever, it will be a brand experience there. That 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 is still possible. I mean, let's face it. On my, on my Apple iPhone, I have Google Maps and still, just because I use Google Maps, it's not that I suddenly say, oh, but this is not an iPhone anymore, but an Android phone. <laughs> so I think there we have to be a little bit more sophisticated how we discuss it. It's not like suddenly the whole product experience becomes a Google experience. Yeah, there's a part of it and I embrace what they do for our, our car and it's a great partnership. And I think there the expertise of both brands come together and create just a beautiful product. What's your data sharing agreement with Google like? How much data do they get to pull out of the car? No, yeah, that's absolutely like on the phone where the customer can actually totally switch the, even within the individual apps, he can decide on how much data he provides and how much he keeps for himself. So that is where that works very much like in the, uh, in any phone setting where you go in and do your privacy settings. But the, te the telematics that you collect about the cars, how much of that do you share with Google? Well, it's very similar. Like, I mean, of course, the, 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 this is not like the whole software is, the software that runs the car is, of course, a, an automotive software. The Google part is the entertainment part. So okay. uh, that's where people have to understand. It's not like the whole software of the car is is run by Android. I mean, that is really the entertainment part where you go into the, the, the App Store, the navigation, and all of that is the Google Android part, while, of course, the whole safety-relevant, drivetrain-relevant, the battery management, all of that's um, the, the, the whole autonomous capabilities of the car, the safety, all that is uh, our software. So the reason I ask is actually about autonomy. I, as cars begin to drive themselves more and more, as there's more driver assistance features, things like maps become critically important to the operation of a car and telling the car where you want to go. And there's obviously a connection between your autonomous driving system and the user 
experience of telling the car in the center screen and then the map underneath that actually tells the car where it is and what might be coming up. And then the data that is collected to refine and improve self-driving. That's that's a lot of layers that need to connect and it seems like Google sits right at the middle of it for you. So I'm curious how you see that relationship developing. Um, there's, um, there's clearly a big, big distinction between what is the entertainment system and okay, the navigation is of course sitting in there. But what we provide today with our autopilot, which of course has when you, we, we very much make, make that difference that we don't call this an autonomous system. It is a support system where you still are in the loop. Mm -hmm. But this is, of course, uh, a software that is completely independent from, from the Google software in the future when we develop in our next car coming this to a highway pilot, which, of course, then will reach as well uh, the autonomous qualities where you really can let go uh, at some point in time. That, of course, is, again, a system which is uh, together with the software company here in Gothenburg, uh, Sensiac, who is developing that. And we have a um, Lumina LiDAR then for that. So all of that is, is on, a, on a complete different page where we develop this technology. Do you think the auto industry should kind of give up on developing the infotainment stack? I mean, I watch every car review on YouTube. I'm addicted to them. And every car reviewer just sort of waves at the center of the car and says, it has CarPlay and Android Auto. And then they just move on. And I, I'm very curious, like, is that the end of the road? Is there more innovation there yet to come? But I, I think this is far too, uh, became far too much of a big, big major question. I mean, imagine in the past, we were always buying our radio from, I don't know, Blaupunkt or whatever company that was. <laughs> I mean, it was never the car maker who made the radio. It was never a car maker who made a phone. I mean, we just simply bring this stuff into the car and um, I, I, I don't see it such a major thing. It definitely is not like suddenly the, this becomes uh, the major domain. I think there will be a... Maybe I'm too naive. Maybe I'm, I'm such a naive guy. But I don't think that it is really this big devil that we invite onto our table and suddenly uh, we lost it all. That to me is one. And of course, it's not as naive as saying, come on, we, we buy a seat from Recaro. I know that there is a bit more, uh, <laughs> a bit more to it. Of course, we have to be smart and clever how we do the contracts and how much the user experience is still a brand-owned experience. And I think so far, my, my, my experience with Google is that they absolutely support that we have a brand own experience, even though we use a system uh, in our car. And there I'm so far over the five years that we're working now together on that have not made a negative experience where I would be now more scared than we were in the beginning, rather the opposite. Austin Russell from Luminar is next. Luminar is a company that makes a specialized LiDAR sensor, one that sees farther down the road than anything on the market. And Austin is focused on keeping the cost way down. That's the big business proposition for Luminar. But in our discussion, we also talked about software. It ought to be a turnkey solution, you know, for this. And to some extent, have already started evolving into that, you know, for, for these different OEMs. And really the reason why is, is to be able to build an autonomous vehicle. The LiDAR is just one part of that holistic solution. Now, it is a key bottleneck that's been preventing the deployment of, in large part, this industry just by way of having something that meets the performance requirements, that meets the economic requirements that can actually be scalable here. But at the same time, the LiDAR itself doesn't drive your car. You need the software to go along with it, as well as some of the rest of the ecosystem there to be able to push forward with that. And that, now there's some argument that some would say of like, okay, well, what on earth, why are you guys screwing around with software? There's like, you know, yeah, okay, you carved out, you know, your value proposition in, in, in hardware, you but you have like folks like Waymo and Cruise and all these like multi-billion dollar software development companies that are taking that on. The whole point is to have a solution that you take that $100,000 roof rack full of stuff or $200,000 roof rack and effectively put into a package that's more on the order of $1,000 than it is $200,000.
That's a huge part of the equation. No question is the cost and the economics there. But it's also just as much building a solution that's tailored for production vehicles that actually can be put into a car in an auto grade solution in capacity and having the software that's focused around the use case and the application, the domain, you're going to have a completely different level of software complexity trying to build for an urban environment than you are for the highway environments that we're focused on for the initial deployments with OEMs. Hearing from Austin is a great segue into another huge theme of these discussions, autonomous driving. Autonomous driving or self-driving refers to the goal of eventually being able to get in a car that drives itself. And then you can answer your email or take a nap and your car gets you to your destination without you ever touching the steering wheel. That goal, at least for cars owned by private individuals, is still pretty far off. But in certain cities, you can already hop in a driverless taxi. Waymo is running driverless taxis in Phoenix and San Francisco right now. The company takes a pretty conservative approach to discussing just how much the cars can do. It's very careful to highlight their weaknesses. On the other end of the spectrum is Tesla, which refers to the software that allows autonomous driving in its cars as quote-unquote full self-driving. That software is still in beta, but people are using it every day. The critics say calling it full self-driving is a dangerous misnomer. So listen to the debate about nomenclature here. You'll hear the CEOs often refer to the levels of self-driving. That's a scale developed by the Society of Automotive Engineers, where level zero is no self-driving whatsoever. Level five is full self-driving, no steering wheel. You're probably really familiar with levels one and two. There's some automation, maybe it's cruise control, maybe it's adaptive cruise control, it's lane keeping. At level three, the car is mostly driving, but may ask for your help. And at level four, the car can mostly drive itself, but not in all conditions. How we talk about what autonomous cars can and can't do, and how we'll get to a place of actual autonomous driving is a big debate here. And these CEOs have a lot of interesting insights on that. Here's Waymo CEO Takedra Mawakana. Waymo, self-driving cars. What's taking so long? <laughs> so um, we've been at it for a while. Yeah. It's, I would say, the engineering challenge of our generation. That's what's taking it so long, to do it and do it well and right. I think means one, safety has to be at the core of everything we do. Safety takes time. And then secondly, we actually have to learn along the way. It's like a process of discovery. And so what's funny to me is when I think back, you know, I joined Waymo almost five years ago. And when I think back, I thought, oh, product market fits, probably done. You know, it's ready to commercialize. And I realized, no, you actually have to put the technology into the real world. And that's how you get it ready. That is the goal for the customer. Our goal in Phoenix was to learn, right? You know, malls have seven, 12 entrances. Which one do you expect to be picked up at? Because the reality is when you give us that address, we may not be at the one, and when there's not a human in the car for you to call or to call you, you know, what, is the, what are the operational challenges associated with actually having a fully autonomous service? You said 20 million miles, which is Waymo's favorite statistic. You've got more than anybody else. But the problem you're describing is very local. It's a very small. Like you could get 100 million miles and you still might not know where the exit of the shopping mall is. Is that a challenge that you're splitting? Is, are you attacking that differently? Yes. So when we talk about the number of miles that we've driven, that's across all 25 cities. And that's really important. I mean, you know, we've tested rain, we've tested heat in Sun Valley, you know, um, snow. So those miles are training the driver for scenarios that we're not currently operating a service in. When I talk about pickup and drop-offs or like the chaos of a parking lot, those are very specific to the service that we're offering and the feedback that we're getting. Here's Brian Selesky from Argo AI. I think it's something that we've understood over the last decade is that um, it isn't enough to just sort of see and understand the world. You also have to predict what it's going to do. Things are in motion. You have to operate in and among other human drivers. If you're in an overly robotic way, the car is going to be constantly starting and stopping and moving left and right in ways that you know, an external observer would say, what the heck is this thing doing? I think we've understood that in the last many years. I will say, I mean, look, I started doing robotics in like 2004 or five in that neighborhood. I do remember my one of the first assignments I had, we were building a simulator and uh, it was kind of like, okay, we were at the whiteboard and like very little prior art existed uh, in, in the ex application we were in. 
And it was like, all right, let's start making a list of all the things that we're going to encounter in the world. <laughs> so I'm staring, as new, new to this industry, I'm staring at the whiteboard with, with a marker and I'm looking at a guy that's been doing this for 15 years and I thought to myself, is this really the starting point? <laughs> right? That's hilarious. So yes, we have come a long way since those times. I think that the dream is was always suspect if the dream was... We're going to deploy millions of cars and go for, go from like literally zero self-driving cars on the street to millions in a couple of years. That that just doesn't change doesn't happen that quickly. On the other hand, if you look at it from a basic compute and storage and silicon standpoint, we've made substantial progress in the 17 years I've been doing this. At some point, though, you know these volumes will go up in these fleets. Component cost will come down over time. I can't predict when this will happen, but it will happen. And at some point, you'll be able to offer this on personally owned vehicles. And at that point, you know, has there, has there been major changes where the sensor footprint of the car has decreased or where it's starting to blend more with what level two systems may have become at that point? I don't know. I'm so far in the future, though, Neelai, that I just <laughs> I can't. I don't know how to. I just put a bunch of dots on the screen for you. I have no idea how to connect them yet time wise. Argo AI partnered with Volkswagen to create something called the ID Buzz. It's a retro-futuristic van with level four automation capabilities that will function as a taxi. So here's Volkswagen Group CEO Herbert Diess talking about that. And on the software side of their autonomous work, which is run by VW's division, Cariad. Uh, and at the end, it's not about software. It's about uh, good integration between the right sensor setup, uh, then the right computer hardware uh, to make all the perception, the planning, and then take the right decisions to run the car safely. At the end, our aim is to be able to drive a car as Volkswagen. And we have two areas. One is where we are uh, pushing with Argo in this area of robotaxis. Uh, robo uh, and um, this goes like shuttle services, limited areas, relatively slow speeds, uh, and the typical ODD, which is learned and programmed, and then it goes area by area, city by city. And the other way we are pushing is private mobility, where we have the Audi team and carrier team working because we think that autonomous driving will not only have this area of, of robotaxis, but also private cars will become autonomous over time. Step by step, no? first probably being able to drive level three, level four on open highways, German autobahns, and then getting into more complex areas. Uh, but this will happen at the same time. It's two different technologies. There are some comments, but uh, not too many. So some of our approaches are sharing the compute technology, some sensors are shared, but at the end, as the task is so different, no? At, at one stage, you think about a completely autonomous car, which is right from the start, able to handle an area. On the other hand, you think about a car which is driving at higher speeds uh, in a less complex area, being able to take over from a driver for a certain period of time. Jeep CEO Christian Munier had a different view on all this. He obviously believes autonomous driving can help people. Jeep is working on that technology. But he thinks fun to drive is still core to the Jeep brand and steering wheels might not go away. We want to keep the pleasure to drive intact. We're a lifestyle machine. We sell lifestyle machines and machines that people enjoy driving and have fun driving them. So we're not going to eliminate that. Unless the customers at one point want to eliminate, but then there is no need to have a Jeep. If the car drives and does everything itself, I think you lose that, that, that emotional connection with your product, with your car. And we don't want to do that. We're not going to build a, a car around, uh, around the screen. A Jeep is first a Jeep, and the technology is going to be an enabler. Jeeps, when you look at the design of a Jeep from the wheelies to now, there is functionality in everything we do and authenticity. The wheel arches, you know, they're not round wheel arches, they're square, right? It's because of efficiency off-road. Functionality is still going to remain a very important piece. We're not going to build technology and then have a car around it. It's not going to be Jeep. We're going to still build a Jeep that people are going to enjoy driving, are going to be proud of. And whenever they're going to, they're going to want to use that L4 technology, they can fall asleep. They can go for a ride. 
with their Jeep or they can go for a walk and the Jeep will find them at the bottom of the hill. That's, <laughs> that's freedom. We're going to take another break, but when we come back, we'll hear all of our CEOs talk about Tesla. Last week, Kanye West accused one of the biggest Twitch streamers of being an industry plant. It's an idea that comes up so often on platforms like TikTok and elsewhere. You see people who have blown up seemingly overnight. And the question is, who's behind them, right? That's what everyone wants to know. Tipping the scales and pulling the lever to make them seemingly the next it thing on the internet. This week on Power User, is it even possible to create an industry plant on the internet? And if so, how? We're back. We just talked a lot about electrification and self-driving, which of course leads us right to Tesla. Tesla came up in almost all these conversations, as did Elon Musk. The company and Musk are major innovators in all of cars, and every other company is forced to react to them from time to time. And it's not always positive. As we hinted above, Waymo CEO Takedra Mawakana has a little bit of a beef with Tesla's messaging. Obviously, we're on stage after Elon was on stage. Tesla has something called full self-driving, which is level two plus on this complicated scale of self-driving that no one understands. You're level four, you want to go to five. Do you think that the full self-driving driver assist stuff where people kind of tune out is poisoning the well of the self-driving conversation at all? So early days, we focused, I guess, 2013, uh, the, self the Google self-driving car project focused on you know, auto assist technology. And what we learned in our experience is people trust the technology beyond its capabilities. And so we witnessed employees actually shaving and sleeping and plugging in you know, sort of to the back seat, even though we told them that that's beyond <laughs> the capability. And so I think the problem is like we're human and when we get in the car, we have other stuff to do. Like we're leaving home and we need to get to work, but like we have three emails we meant to send, but the cat ran out or the dog got locked, whatever, right? And so I think the problem is you have to give people the chance to just do what they wanna do, which is not focus on driving. And so what we're focused on, the reason we're focused on level four is we believe that is the only way to safely deploy this technology in a way that improves road safety, which is the mission that we are built on. And so it's a very different business model when you're talking about driver assist. I mean, I have that in my car, it makes me stay in the lane. It's delightful for what it is, but it isn't something that allows me to tune out. Brian Seleski from REOAI brought up Tesla in the context of self-driving as well. People do dumb things in their Teslas, which are advertised to have a thing called full self-driving or autopilot. There's a lot of confusion there. So what, what in your mind is beyond just can you sleep in it? What is the difference? What is the line that you can evaluate? Do you have to pay attention and keep your hands on the wheel or not? Is it hands off, mind off or not? To me, that's the fundamental question, regardless of what marketing terms you use. At the end of the day, Tesla is very clear that you need to be paying attention, have your, your hands on the wheel, and be prepared to take over if the technology is not going to do the right thing. Certainly, people are, are free at, at this moment. It would appear people are free to use that product however they want at their own risk. My view is that regardless of what marketing terms we use, we're never going to speak to the everyday consumer when we use terminology like L2, L2 plus. Let me listen to myself <laughs> on this show this last hour, L4. Well, you know, Neli, I'm not sure that L3, right? I can, I can talk all day long, right? And people are just, their eyes are going to glaze over. I remember hearing a story uh, a while back about Volvo and some pedestrian detection technology that they had. And they were running through a test for a customer and uh, the salesperson leapt out in front of the car and got run over. Well, you know what? The car wasn't equipped with it. It turned out it was an option. That car did not have that option. <laughs> so I don't know if that story is accurate or not, but we clearly are not putting this information out there in an easy to use, easy to understand way. And to me, that's the thing that the whole industry needs to solve. And not just autonomy. I'm saying this is an automotive industry issue that we need to push on. So this is the, the big question. Do you think... Tesla rolling out autopilot in beta, letting people do dumb things with it, constantly generating news cycles about it going sideways. There was a video the other day where it was getting confused by 
the moon in the sky. I don't know if you saw it, but it kept I saw the moon. It, yeah, it was yellow a ye- yellow light. Um, Do you think that stuff yeah. is just poisoning the well? Is it making change harder? Maybe. You know, here's what I wonder. So out of out of the, the autopilot accidents, the collisions that have occurred, I'd really be interested in those who can be interviewed to just say, did you know how the product was intended to be used? And did you knowingly, like, use it differently? Or, or just did you knowingly ignore the instructions? I wonder, you know, and now I'm going to put the counterpoint to what I was just saying. Maybe it actually isn't so so much an education thing. And it's just it goes back to uh, the old adage with doing consumer products, which is if there's a way to abuse it, it will be abused. I, I don't know. Maybe that's what's at play here. I think it's worthy of discussion, though, because it's clear that there is a problem and we, we need to get to the bottom of is it edu- maybe it's all the above maybe it's it's education and it's also hey you know what maybe a driver monitoring system is not a bad thing like if your car really does require a person to stay focused on the road maybe you actually need to monitor and make sure that they are uh, for it to be engaged or stay engaged like th- there's conversations here that um, I think are really important to be having right now because at the end of the day the core foundational case for all of this, in my view, is safety. It's There's convenience element to it as well, but these are safety products at the end of the day. And here's Polestar CEO Thomas Ingenlatt, who, since he runs an electric car company, is particularly interested in Tesla's charging network. Have you talked to Tesla about opening up the supercharger network, about participating with them or having them participate with you? Well, there have been talks in the past, and I'm sure there will be talks in the future from day sometimes say they will open it and uh, let's see if they at some point really um, will do it. Do you ever think of just going crazy on Twitter to compete with Elon and um, build the Polestar brand the way that he builds the Tesla brand? <laughs> um, no, I don't think that that is my style. How do you think about competing with Tesla as a brand, right? You talked about building Polestar as a brand. Tesla famously does no marketing. They're, they're a very different kind of company. You have to be authentic. And I mean, that is... You know, I mean, that's maybe his way of being authentic and fine. And we have to be our way authentic and we have to be as a brand as authentic as possible. And I think we should never, ever try to imitate somebody to see who who are we to let people participate on our story. And that is, I think, what we really followed the way the last years that we make people understand what why we're doing things, what we believe in, and try to share the, the joy and the passion about what we create and um, try to make that better with the people giving us the feedback. That's our way, and we are not uh, um, a brand that, you know, would now put a specific person into uh, into the limelight for us. It's a different way of building it. And having said that, it's it's still fairly individual and I think a colorful brand. I think that we were never shy of expressing an opinion. We went very <laughs> bold out and, you know, declared the end of the combustion age and said goodbye to that. We were very bold in declaring that, you know, it's uh, our way of going with Google Android. We have very clearly stated that we dislike the way of, you know, compensating for CO2 emissions that we truly believe that the way to zero emission is something that we have to do without compensation and really make it happen over the next nine years that we have a zero emission car. That's where we made our points and uh, feel we built our brand around this um, beliefs. Next, Jeep CEO Christian Munier. Elon Musk has recently made some more comments about opening up the superchargers. Is that a conversation you've had or that Solantis has had with Tesla? We have discussion with, obviously, with all the OEMs, Electrify America, all the providers of you know, charging station, because I think it's in everybody's interest to find solution that will work for everybody. You know, when Tesla sells, starts selling more volume, they're going to need a little bit more charging station as well, and they won't be able to be standalone. So I think it's 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 really going to be a common need for all the manufacturers to find a common solution. It's not about having unique solution by brand. It's, it's never going to happen. I think it's going to have to be a public infrastructure that is available to all the brands for that to work. 
Here's Volkswagen Group CEO Herbert Diess. In other parts of this interview, Herbert kept calling Tesla, quote, our American competitor, which uh, is very good. Tesla's great advantage is very tight integration of hardware and software. Even through the chip shortage that I definitely want to ask you about, right? They were able to swap out chips and rewrite the software based on what chips were available in a way that virtually no other car company was able to do. No, no, that's not true. We do we do that also continuously, but you have to you have to imagine now we are much more complex. Now we have a variety yeah. of, of supply chains, which makes us uh, and even the platform strategy makes us a little bit more vulnerable. But we also we already did some redesigns. Probably we are still a bit too slow. I agree. How do you think about uh, the pace of investment in building the charging network there? I'm looking at the numbers here. Uh, you expect to have 1800 fast charging stations and 10,000 chargers in America by the end of 2025. There are already 10,000 Tesla superchargers. Is that fast enough? Yeah, in some countries, we are already ahead of, of Tesla. Mm -hmm. I think that's fast enough because it has to go along with the, with the growth of the fleet. No, mm -hmm. But you're absolutely right. We can't do all the investment out of our cash flows. No, we are partnering. And uh, we are also looking for, in some areas, for instance, batteries. No, batteries are a much bigger concern for me because the investment there is still bigger than in uh, in, in charging, uh, where we will uh, even uh, consider IPOs or, or allowing third parties to participate in the growth, because there will be a lot of growth in that area of EVs, charging networks, batteries, and I'm sure that we will find uh, investors to participate. But we can't uh, finance all of the necessary investment out of our cash flows. Every now and again, I will say Elon Musk talks about opening superchargers we had the CEO of Polestar. He says, "Yeah, they talk about it, but it's never going to happen." Do you <laughs> do you think do you think we're going to see a, a, a actual push from the industry to standardize charging, especially fast charging? I think besides this proprietary network, which is quite established already worldwide, not in Europe, US uh, mostly, uh, the rest is really uh, industry wide usable. There's still, let's say. When it comes to, to billing or charging, there are different standards, different price tags. But here in Europe, you can use every pole, uh, which is not uh, Tesla. And, and I'm, I, I really, I'm, I think it's a positive move from uh, Tesla to, to consider opening up the network. But uh, that always has, uh, uh, Tesla has to decide on that. No, Tesla has to decide on that. We see, uh, my perception is that the charging network actually is growing very, very fast, at least in Europe. I drove electric cars basically the whole year through in 21. I've done about 15,000 kilometers. I was uh, to Italy yesterday. I came back from, uh, from Austria. It was only once that I had to wait on a charging pole. Yeah. So that means that uh, I think it's, uh, it's a lot discussed. Uh, but also in the, in the US, you can go from West Coast to East Coast without stopping. So I think we, we overstate the issue. And, and it's growing really fast. And there's so much investment going in. And it's not only auto. No, everyone is investing in charging networks. The, the utilities companies, the petrol companies, no, they, they also are changing swiftly. Currently, we, for instance, we, we agreed with uh, uh, BP, they are running the biggest refueling network in uh, Germany. Uh, we will convert all the fuel stations into charging uh, within a two-year time period. So there's a lot of investment going in. And I think it's, it's, it will be in line with the growth of EVs. The, the bigger constraint might be batteries. And here's Ford CEO Jim Farley. Tesla did something very bold with the Cybertruck. It is a triangle on wheels. It, it looks absolutely nuts. Some people are very taken with it. It kind of feels like with the Mach-E, you entered a little bit of Tesla's territory. Sedans, you brought it up yourself. And with the Cybertruck, they're trying to bite a little bit of yours. How is that competition going? It's all good. It's all good for the customer. That Mach-E and the Tesla Y, they're different customers, 70 plus percent of our customers for Mach-E were completely sold out, are new to Ford. It's all good. That's good for everyone. We'll be in a competition of who does the most OTAs that matter the most for customers. <laughs> and, and on pickup trucks, uh, all I'll say is there are lots of flavors of soda, but there's only one Coke. And there'll be lots of electric pickup trucks, 
there's only one F-150. It's bold. I like it. Do you ever think about just like wilding out on Twitter to compete with Elon directly? Um, you know, look, I have to tell you that I have nothing but respect for Tesla. It was one of the most magical things that happened in our industry is to see a company so single-minded, uh, so focused on uh, simplicity and really reinventing the customer experience. And uh, yeah, I mean, we've had some moments on Twitter actually <laughs> around Blue Cruise. Ford's a customer company. Like we've been in business for 118 years because we're focused on customers, especially in, the, in these kind of iconic spaces like Mustang or Bronco or, or F-150. And I think I admire companies that are like us who are focused on customers. And I think they've done a great job. It just uh, pickup truck customers are a little bit different. At the end of the show, I usually ask CEOs, what's next? What's the next thing we can look forward to? But what I'm looking forward to is cars without steering wheels. So I asked them, when do you think you'll sell a car without a steering wheel? Sell, difficult to say. First thing will be probably the fleets we are running. No, uh, first, probably own fleets uh, together with Argo AI. 25, 26, we should get started. No, still with a steering wheel for getting the car in, in certain occasions back. Uh, but towards 30, we should be able to sell cars without a steering wheel for transport services. Now, for the, let's say, for private use, most of those cars probably still would have a steering wheel in case of, let's say, heavy weather conditions, or let's say you go into a very remote area where the car is not able to handle it. How long until I can buy a car without a steering wheel? Ooh, um, probably... It, it, yeah, yeah, I would say early 2030s, realistically. A couple different observations here. There's a key distinction to that question of when can you buy a car without a steering wheel? It's not, it's not clear that people will actually be selling these cars without steering wheels. So make the same prediction about steering wheels. In 2040, will most Jeeps have steering wheels in them? Mm-hmm. That's, a good, that's a good question. I think in 2030, they will have steering wheels. Uh, in 2040, I still think we're going to need steering wheels because uh, Jeep is not, you know, we're not a transportation brand, right? We're not there to transport from A to Z. We're here to provide pleasure, emotion, driving pleasure, fun to drive. And uh, the steering wheel, whether it's completely round or square or different shape or levers, is going to be very critical because the driver... The owner is going to be in charge. So, yeah, we will have a steering wheel, whether it's the same shape or a different shape. We will. Pretty sure. No doubt. Thank you again to all the auto CEOs for coming on our show over the last 11 months. Austin Russell, Jim Farley, Brian Seleski, Thomas Ingenlatt, Takedra Maokana, Christian Mounier, and Herbert Deese. Thanks also to Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed this format experiment. It was a little bit of a ride for us, but I think it worked out. Let us know what you think. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, give us that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Jackie McDermott, and Liam James. It was edited by Kelly Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino, and our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.